lives. Maybe this morning another miracle will take place. Uh, I'm going to invite you, if you have a copy of a Bible with you, of course the verses will be on the screen, but uh, if you have your own copy of the Bible, I always really favor doing that uh, and have both things. But uh, would you go with me to Romans chapter 3? Uh, we've taken two weeks off of our study in Romans, so we're going to return there. Obviously, two weeks ago, we talked about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, his death on the cross. And then last week, being Easter, we really focused on uh, the Lord's resurrection. And so this morning, uh, we will return uh, to Romans, and uh, we're ending out chapter 3 this morning. So um, before we put our whole text up on the screen, I'll go ahead and tell you we're going to be looking mainly at five verses today. So our text today is Romans 3, verse 27 to 31, but I want to begin by just putting up verse 27 for starters, because I have a question for you, all right? Verse number 27, just the first verse of today's text says, then what becomes of our boasting? Paul says it's excluded. By what kind of law? By law of works? No, but by the law of faith. I'm having you look at the first verse, but look at the first sentence Look at it again. Then what becomes of our boasting? But don't even just look at the first sentence. Look at the first word. And somebody who has kind of learned and studied, you heard Deanna talking about uh, classes on how to study your Bible. Those of you who have kind of learned some techniques when it comes to studying your Bible, don't be afraid to say it out loud. First word of verse number 7, what does that mean we have to do? We got to go back. Right? You see the first word of verse 27? Then what becomes of our boasting? I cannot start preaching on that because then what? Then what? You've been talking about something. And because it's been three weeks since we've looked at Romans, uh, and because we have some folks who would not have been here for, for that message or the one previous, so some of you are like, now how far back are you going to go? You know, we've been in Romans quite a while. We're not going back to chapter 1. We're not going back to chapter 2. We're not even going back to the beginning of chapter 3. I do want to go all the way back to and read the entire passage we looked at last time, plus one verse. So you're like, how far back is that? Look at verse 20. Let's pick up at verse 20, all right? Romans chapter 3. And this is really coming at the end of a passage where Paul makes it very clear we are all guilty. The entire world, we have, we're guilty by our character. We're guilty by our conversation. We're guilty by our conduct in God's courtroom. And as a result of that, he draws some conclusions. Verse 20, now I'm going to start reading. You ready? Let's really soak in the authoritative word of God this morning. Verse number 20. Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, For by works of the law, this is so black and white, guys. There is no gray here. We got to start soaking. You may have walked in here this morning thinking completely different, and you need to update your thinking according to verse 20. You may say, I have known this so long, I've heard it so many times. We'll take it one layer deeper than you've ever had it before. Let's settle one more time what verse 20 says. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Why? Since through the law comes knowledge of sin so the law was never designed for us to hear it and obey it and impress God and now we've earned our way way to heaven no human being will get to heaven by keeping the law by the way the law I could be talking about the moral aspects of the law that's the commandments we really focus on the ten commandments that could be talking about Israel's civil law where they had laws in the Old Testament that whereby they ran their nation 
well, what if they kept those really, really well? And then you have the whole ceremonial law. What if they really studied that out and they did everyone specifically every time of the year? Guys, the truth is, whether ceremonially, civil law, moral law, no human being will be justified in the sight of God by keeping the law. It just wasn't designed for that. Now, verse 21 to 26 is the last time. That is that last message. And if you'll remember, he was talking about the righteousness of God. And the righteousness of God, I'll go ahead and remind you, is definitely revealed in the Old Testament. It's real clear. God is righteous. He has personal righteousness. But now, verse 21, I even wrote my Bible, A.D. 56. When Paul wrote this, what he's saying, yes, we've known about the righteousness of God in the Old Testament. He certainly has personal righteousness. But verse 21 says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Doesn't mean the law doesn't still show the righteousness of God. But he's saying there's another kind of righteousness that's not just God's personal righteousness. Uh Uh-oh, it's now God's provided righteousness. Verse 21 again. But now, AD 56 and following, The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The law and the prophets are not jealous of the New Testament. They were pointing to it all along. What kind of righteousness is this? The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. The righteousness of God through faith. Faith in what? In a person. It's not how big your faith is. It's who your faith is in. Through faith in Jesus Christ for all. So you say, so then everybody goes to heaven. All who believe. For there is no distinction. We pointed out a few weeks ago. There may be a difference in degree but not in effect between someone who hates and someone who commits murder. Oh, there's difference in degree. They committed murder. They just wanted to. Right? There may be a difference in degree but the effect is the exact same. Verse 23 There's no distinction for all have sinned. That includes you and I. All fall short of the glory of God. Our past we have sinned. We continue to fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift. That little three words, as a gift, means for nothing, for no reason. God, why did you save me? Why did you justify me? Why did you give me eternal life? By your grace. What kind of grace is it? It's grace for nothing. You did nothing. It's grace just for no reason. But but why? For no reason on your end. Just because that's the kind of God I am. Verse 24 continues. All of sin fall short are justified by His grace as a gift through redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Those of you here three weeks ago, you remember, oh, this is one of those terms we hit. Do y'all remember what redemption means? You don't say it out loud, but if we were to put it on a multiple choice, would you be able to get which definition is redemption? Because these words matter, we need to, so I want to drive it in a little bit deeper. You say, okay, remind me one more time. What is redemption? Redemption is when you care enough about someone that you will deliver them because they're in bondage. How do you deliver them? You go in and battle? No, you pay a price. So if someone is captive and someone wants a ransom for this person, you value the person so much you pay the ransom. And really, even stronger, the picture here is of a slave who is mastered by someone. Earlier in chapter 3, Paul says, I've con- we've concluded that all are under sin. We're not just sinners. We're under the authority of sin. It's our master. It's our boss. We do what it says. We just sin all the time. It comes so naturally. Paul says, God loved us enough to redeem us. He paid a price to ransom us or to free us out of the slavery to sin that we were in. Verse 25. 
He finishes verse 24, Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation. Guarantee you, 95% of you have not used the word propitiation in a sentence so far this year. So you're like, what in the world is propitiation? Oh yeah, he talked about that one. What does that one mean? Here it is. God is so wrathful at sin, far angrier than we ever know he is at sin. He's so wrathful at sin that he demands that a sacrifice be made to appease his wrath. And say, man, that sounds like a lot of the pagan religions. Well, they got that truth from somewhere. They know, they think that the gods are angry at sin. Where they got that idea was the one single God really is angry at sin and demanded a payment. And so verse 25 says, Jesus Christ, whom God, he himself, put forward out in front of everyone. We talked about the crucifixion of Christ. How? As a propitiation, a sacrifice, a blood sacrifice by his blood to be received by faith. And then the rest of these next verse and a half tells why he did that. God, why did you put Christ forward as a sacrifice to appease your wrath? This was to show God's righteousness. Why did he kill Jesus on the cross? To show God's righteousness. Well, why did that need done? Watch the next phrase. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Watch this. Quick recap. Forbearance means where God is withholding judgment. He gives a temporary truce where we as sinners have sinned and broken his laws. Judgment's coming, but he's holding it back to allow time to repent and get right with him and get at peace with him. But here's the problem with that. People live their lives, they commit sin, and yeah, they acknowledge, yeah, people eventually die and everyone dies, but hey, I've done a lot of sin. I guess God's okay with it because he's not doing anything. And so God says, just to remind everyone I really am righteous, I had to kill my own son on the cross to show how angry I am at sin. And I will judge sin. If I killed my son on a cross who became sin for you, what do you think I would do to you if you reject him? Then, verse 26 Why did he put Jesus forth as a propitiation? It was to show his righteousness at the present time. Why? So that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So the real theme of all those verses is justification. Can I very quickly remind what justification is? Here it is. It's how we get in a right relationship with God. Here's justification. Justification does not mean that when I was a nine-year-old boy and I got saved, that God suddenly made me righteous. That is not justification. All that sin that I had committed just didn't go away, but he was able to treat me as if I were righteous. He declared me righteous because I put my faith in what Jesus did on the cross. So justification, here's one more way. It's not only where God forgives us of our sin, but remember the scale Raise your hand if you remember the picture of the scale that was on the screen a few weeks ago. We talked about how at judgment, mankind has to come in God's judgment. He will evaluate our life. And what's going to happen, it's like a scale. And on one side is the law, all the do's and the don'ts, the 613 commandments. And they're going to be put on one side. And they're very heavy and weighty and substantial. And down goes that side of the the scale. And all you have to do to go to heaven is you and all of your righteousness, you get on the other side, and if you can balance that scale, you get to go to heaven. The only problem is our righteousness is as filthy rags. Our best day is as filthy rags. We have no righteousness. That's the problem. So here comes justification. Remember how we word it. The law is heavy. It must be balanced out. You get on the scale, all your righteousness, it doesn't even budge. It's like dust on the scales. You have nothing to contribute. But if, you say, how do you get saved? 
If you will hear that picture and realize you're going to stand before God one day, if you will invite Jesus, Jesus, you have righteousness, will you please get on the scale with me? He says, I will get on the scale with you and balance it out, and I'll give you my righteousness, and then God will treat you as if you hadn't sinned. That's justification. So with that in mind, let's read today's text. And some of you are like, well, why didn't you cover it that fast last time? Man, we could get out of here a lot quicker. Okay. Verse 27. So you see how he's talking about faith, faith, faith. That's why he starts verse 27 this way. Uh, Then what becomes of our boasting? You feel that? Paul says, since God saves people that way, what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By the law of works? No. But by the law of faith. For we hold, the idea is we make a conclusion here. We hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. That's his conclusion, verse 28. Sounds a lot like verse 20. So a separate thought is in verse 29 and 30. Paul feeding off of that says, Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one. Those of you who know your Jewish history, like, uh-oh, is he playing off of something? No, absolutely. He's reminding his Jewish audience, since God is one, who will justify the circumcised Jews by faith and the uncircumcised Gentiles through faith. Well, will it work? Verse 31. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith, this teaching of Christianity? Paul's asking, do you think my teaching, the teaching of the New Testament, do you think it just overthrows the law by this faith that we talk of? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. So this morning we got three thoughts. We got six questions, but really I think we got three categories of thought this morning. And let's touch on those. Would you write this down? Number one, faith excludes boasting. Faith excludes boasting. God is the lawgiver. God designed salvation. There is a way to be saved. God designed it such, listen guys, that not one of us can ever brag about what we did to be saved. Not one person can take credit for his salvation. So you say, how did God design that? By two laws. There are two laws. You say, I didn't know there were two laws. I thought there was only one. There's actually two laws and there's another law, the law of Christ, that will be mentioned at the end of the message today. But here he mentions two. Watch this. There's the law of Moses, the Old Testament law, that law of works. It served a purpose. And then there's this law of faith. You say, what's the law of faith? Each one says something about God. The law of the Old Testament law of works, the law of Moses, you know what it says? There is a God. He is separate from sin. He hates sin. He can't tolerate sin. He can't overlook and ignore sin. He must punish sin. God is separate from sin. That's what the Old Testament law teaches us. But watch, God made another law. So God says anyone who breaks my moral laws, they must suffer a penalty for breaking my law. But I make another law, the law of faith, that if anyone will put their faith and trust in what my son did on the cross, they will not have to pay the death penalty for their sin. My son will have already paid it, and they will get to receive his righteousness and live forever with God in heaven. And you say, man, you're kind of talking a little bit fast. I want to say it multiple times, multiple ways, and in a moment we might even illustrate it. So again, each law says something about God. 
The Old Testament law, he's separate from sin, but God's law of faith shows he's the God that is loving and gracious. He's giving. Even though they've broken my laws, I'm not going to just let them go. I'm going to bring them to myself. How? I'm going to provide grace through my power, my son's death on the cross. Verse number 28. I am not going to spend enough time on this verse. I promise you I'm not. But it is a, it's a verse I use a lot lately. More and more in the last probably three years I use this verse more and more. Look at verse 28. It's a conclusion. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. I don't know why, but I always act this one out. I literally do. We did this the other day at Celebrate Recovery. Watch those, those, those four words. Faith apart from works. Faith apart. Watch, here it is. Faith, this is the way you get saved, faith apart from, so over here's works, here's me trying to be good and stop being bad and do the, do the right things, but this is the works, and Paul says we conclude, we hold that a person is justified by faith apart from. You say, what's the main lesson? The main lesson there shows that salvation is not a blending of faith in Jesus plus works at any level. Any level. You're like, well, what if I'm like 99% faith in Jesus and I'm doing my part, the 1%? None. No percentage. You're like, what if I didn't even 1%? I'm just like 0.5%. None. You cannot combine faith and works at any level. It will not work. You say, why not? Two reasons. Number one, you've already blown the law. You've already broken it. You can never unbreak it. You've already loved other things more than God. You've already lied. You've already taken God's name in vain. You've already disobeyed your parents. You've already coveted, right? You've already lusted. All of us have done everything I've just said. Unless you're in here and you have never taken the Lord's name in vain at any level and you are very unique. But we've done that. So why can it not be a blend at any portion? Because we've already broken it. And secondly, watch this. If we could do it that way, you know what we'd do? What would we do? We'd brag and boast. Hey, how'd you get to heaven, Tim? Well, I trusted Jesus. Oh, good for you. I, I kind of earned my own way here. I'm good. I wasn't as bad as you guys, or I wasn't bad as you guys. I, God hates pride. God made the way of salvation by faith because God hates pride and boasting. Boasting is one form of pride, as many forms but boasting comes from, from pride. I've learned this. God will not tolerate pride in the least. But here's the problem. I've got to be honest with you. Pride remains our vice, doesn't it? All of us. And if you hear that and say, well, I have my issues, but pride isn't one of them. Okay. I'm glad you're humble and know it. I'm glad you know how humble you are. One man worded it this way. I thought this was tremendous. You ought to chew on this. Take it home. Put it in the back of your mind. Chew on it. Someone has said pride is man's innermost garment. So what does that mean? It's your undergarment. I have on an undershirt. Here's what he means. It's the first one on and the last one off. What he's doing, he, he talks about an analogy. If this is the Christian life, and we'll talk about this at the end of the message today, this is how you get saved, but if the Christian life, for me, 1979 until now, if the Christian life is going through and God is peeling away layer by layer the old nature of sin, 
Boy, I used to say that, but by God's grace, I don't say that anymore. I used to really have a problem with that. And some of, some of you, you've seen victory. I used to lie all the time, but now I don't lie. I used to really be discontent, but now my contentment's in the Lord. I used to really be angry, or I really used to be lustful. I had a, this problem with this. I would steal things, whatever. But now, here's the wonderful thing. That is normal things to happen in the Christian life. You're becoming more godly. Here's the only problem. The more we become like the Lord in those areas, the more we start noticing how we don't sin anymore. And there's pride. It's the first one on. It's the last one that comes off. That dawned on me the other day. If two things could happen, we would never be proud again. One, if we, let me just make it personal. If you could see yourself as you really are, you would never be proud again. And if you could see God as he really is, you would never be proud again. We'd never boast again. But we do. If we don't say it, we think it. We really do. I thought of an analogy we do these little accomplishments. We forget the middle part of Romans 3 and how corrupt we are, these 14 indictments. But we'll do something good, and in our minds we really play up how good we are. And again, if you're sitting there saying, well, that's not me. Okay, you're doing it right now. I promise you. We really like to think highly of ourselves. Hey, it's baseball season right now. I want you to picture. Here's the, here's the picture, right? It's baseball season. You've got season tickets whether it be at Clemson or you drive all the way to Columbia or you go to Atlanta and you watch the Braves and, okay, whatever it is. Picture, you've been doing this for years and there's a guy on the team and this is about three or fourth year, literally. Watch this. What would you imagine? A guy, he has batted 999 times and has never got a hit. First of all, you'd be wondering, why do we still have him in the lineup? This guy's automatic out. He's zero for 999. But on his 1,000th plate appearance, he gets a bloop over the second baseman's head who tracks it down, turns, throws. It's bang, bang play. They don't use replay. It's controversial, but he gets to stay on for What would you think of this guy as he comes and dusts himself off, turns and says to the pitcher, who's the man now? Uh-huh. Yeah. You've been watching this guy for three years. And he has the audacity, he said, uh-huh, I took your junk deep over the second baseman. Yeah, who's the man now? And then while he's doing this, he gets thrown behind, picked off first base, <laughs> thinking he's going to steal second. You, I know what you'd be thinking. You'd be thinking, what an idiot. That's what we do. We just break God's laws internally, externally, but we finally do something right. And we just think it just makes up for everything, don't we? True salvation. Verse 27, what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. By what, what kind of law? By law of works? No, by the law of faith. True salvation, write this down, excludes pride. Why? You've got to hear this. It's so simple, but you have to really digest it. It excludes pride because we can only be saved by humbling ourselves and letting God save us. That's all you can do today. You're like, right, I have to come forward and I have to bow down. Right? Oh, I've got to go out with someone and then I have to bow down. I have to move my vocal cords and word things are perfect. No, I promise you, none of those things. That's not how you get saved. God's looking for one thing. What you have to do is say, God, I can't save myself. I'm going to let you do all the saving. I've learned a few years ago, sometimes we'll remember something if we see it. Sometimes we've used chairs. Y'all have heard us use that. I want, I want to do a little different. 
Uh, I'm taking a risk here, by the way. Uh, I have talked with the one person, Jonathan, if you will come on out. Uh, Jonathan kind of knows what's happening. You say, well, why, why are you going to use Jonathan? Uh, because if this doesn't go well, uh, I won't get sued. Because <laughs> I can't sue myself. Come on up to the stage. Uh, and I'm going to get some helpers. And I'm picking these kind of guys on purpose. Uh, Jarvis, I told you, I, I think I gave you a heads up. I'm going to need Jarvis right quick. Ray, I ask you already. Uh, David Rude, aren't you back there in the back? Uh, boy, he's going to shoot me with his family. Chris Sr., I know you hate crowds. I need you. I need you to come on up. Come on up here right quick. I need these four guys to come right here right quick. You four guys. Now, just kind of two and two, all right? Two and two. So, right here, make a road right here, this way. Make a little path right here. There you go. David right there, Chris right here. If you guys get a little closer, we really need to get a little closer. You're like, what's getting ready to happen? Jonathan, I, I don't know, by the way, I think he will. He said he's done this before. Jonathan's going to turn around, and on command, he's going to fall. And they're going to trust him. You're like, oh, yeah, we did that one time at the corporate retreat. Yeah, we did, we did team building. Yeah, the one old boy, he got a concussion. Because we kind of had a running joke, and everybody, or he went before we were ready. So, guys, really, I'm serious. I hope they don't drop him. Uh, one, I don't need the, the bills. I don't need the animat at me. And if this doesn't go well, I'm going to tell you the service was over. If he gets a concussion, starts foaming at the mouth, uh, Danny's closing the service in prayer, and off I go to the hospital. By the way, yeah, he, he's, Ray said he's in trouble because they're hungry. They're ready. <laughs> drop him. Just let him go. All right, but here's the thing. I don't know yet what Jonathan will do. I really don't. We talked about this less than a minute last night. I hadn't talked with any of these guys specifically. Uh, I did tell Jonathan we would be from, I don't know, what is that, 27, 28 inches. And if where you're sitting, you're like, oh, there's nothing to it. Yeah, it's easy where you're at. But I'm telling you. I'll promise you, here is natural. I'm not going to stand to the edge. Natural is as you start going, watch this. Remember that percentage I said? 99.5 and then the 0.5. Remember that? Watch. Here's faith and works. Watch. Real quick. You see it? Or it's this. If that happens, he don't really trust you guys. But if he just turns and on the count, one, two, three, falls. If he truly just don't even look, just let's go, don't even turn, that means he trusts you. Now, I picked these guys on purpose. They are capable. Y'all agree they're capable? Are they reliable? We'll see. <laughs> I hope they're reliable. We're getting ready to find out. So watch that ledge. I'm going to watch Jonathan turn around. I don't know what's going to happen. He might bail out. He's got his hands in his pockets. So just a little lower, a little lower. Yeah. Watch your head. And back just a little, just a little. I want him to feel a touch of weightlessness. All right, one, two, three, just. That's good. That's good. Hey, on a serious note, 
Deanna said thank you. Uh, to them. Hey, seriously. Have you ever done that spiritually? Have you ever come to a point? Some of you in here haven't. Many of you have. Have you ever come to a point, literally, not physically, but spiritually, literally you just said, God, I can't do it. I'm just falling in the arms of Christ. If I go to heaven, it'll be because you get me there. I'm, I know you will. I'm doing everything you said, which is nothing. If you guys don't get the concept of this today, this section, when we get to October, November, and we start hitting a little more toward the middle of Romans, you're going to want to leave this church. And I ain't joking. You're not going to like what I'm going to say when we get there. If you really get this concept, you will not choke when we get to chapter 9 and 10. But if you don't understand this concept, we do nothing to get saved. If you don't get it, you're going to choke later and you're going to get really angry. Just telling you. Warren Wiersbe really wrapped it up well. He said, the swimmer, when he is saved from drowning, does not brag because he trusted the lifeguard. What else could he do? Uh, picture the pool or the beach, whatever. Picture the dude, he was drowning, screaming, down once, down twice. Lifeguard finally got there, brought him in. He did nothing but what Jonathan did. He just totally relaxed. He gets brought in, maybe pump out a little bit of water. Could you picture him going up the beach 20 minutes later in Barney Fife, boys? Why did you ladies happen to see me? Like, that was you, wasn't it? Yeah, I'm kind of a big deal around here. I let him save me. Okay, whatever. Uh, let's keep going. You don't brag about letting somebody save you. You just let them save you. Pride has a lot of layers. A lot of layers. Let me share one that some folks in this room, I don't know who you are, I just know it's there. Some folks in this room, you may have had this form of pride. Here it comes. You ready? Oh, yeah, no, he does all the saving. But, I mean, I will say, watch, it isn't much. But I did have faith. I did do that. I did have faith in Jesus when others didn't. Did you? Yeah, it isn't much, but I did put my faith in Christ. I trusted let me ask you something. Why did you trust, and I'm looking for a specific reason, two billion people in the world, a specific group, two billion have not trusted Jesus. Why did you trust and they haven't yet? You trusted because you, what? Two billion have never heard. You heard. Read this thought. If you think, well, at least I trusted. Wrong. You believed because you heard. You heard because God arranged the time, the place, the circumstances that brought you there. For me, it was Christian camp, a Bible camp. Somebody paid my way. And God had taught a man scripture and truth. And he stood up and proclaimed the truth. And it hit me that night. Same thing with you. You're like, but at least I had the faith. Watch Ephesians. It'll be on the screen. Ephesians 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith. That's the last noun in that sentence. And the very next thing, and this, see that pronoun? This, what's that pointing to? 
It could be pointing to grace. It could be pointing to being saved. It at least refers to faith. And you're like, I believed you were dead in sins. Your spirit was as dead as the stage I'm standing on. You heard truth before, but you didn't respond. But that time, if you are saved, you responded that time because he gave you faith. Verse, the next verse says, and this is not your own doing. This faith, this being saved, this grace is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not of works. You're saying, so God even gave me the very faith to believe? Absolutely. You say, well, I just still, that's just one verse. That one's a little fuzzy. John 6, 44. No, this is Jesus. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. You can't go, the only way to get to heaven is through Christ. You can't go to Christ by faith unless the Father draws you. You say, I'm still not convinced. 2 Timothy chapter 2 is a message to preachers. Chapter 2, verse number 24. Paul tells the young preacher, Timothy, he says, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, though. It's not that we just abandon truth. We just don't get caught up in all these foolish and ignorant controversies. All they do is stir up quarrels. So verse 24, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Watch verse 26, 5 in the middle. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. And you see the rest of verse 26. Where's boasting in that? There is none. I'm going to invite you this morning, don't ever boast. But further than that, don't even think exalted internal feelings. Listen, they always linger. Can I just say something real obvious? Can I state the obvious? God's blessing our church right now. Do y'all sense that? You're like, oh, we're having more people. That's part of it, but it's a lot more than that. There's a good spirit. People's lives are being affected. People are wanting to serve God. People are wanting to discover who they are in the Lord. There's just a good thing. But can I say something more obvious? You're like, okay, what's more obvious than that? Listen carefully. Here it is. God is blessing our church. Is not us. It's not our effort. Are there people working hard here? Oh, yeah. But it's not our effort. It's not our talent. Are there talented people here? Yes. There are gifted people in positions around here. Is it our resources? No, it's not our resources. I love our resources. I love our building. I really like our location. I live three-tenths of a mile away. I really like it. Unless you ever get the wrong idea, let me tell you, this sure hit me. I have preached the exact same way for years, and you know what I've seen? Y'all? Yeah, tell us about that. Here's what I've seen. I've seen many look and nod and agree, but not many moved. Not many moved. And now, because God sovereignly does it, some folks are actually responding. I hadn't changed a lick. God just decides, I will pour my blessing. It is him at every level. It is never us. Samuel Bringle, the longtime leader of the Salvation Army, this is a great quote. He says, the axe cannot boast of the trees it has cut down. It could do nothing but for the woodsman. He made it. He sharpened it. He used it. The moment he throws it aside, it becomes only old iron. 
the moment you say, well, the reason for this is because this one does that or that one has a skill or an ability or these have resources. I'm telling you, the moment God sets it aside, we're just old iron. He can use somebody else. Galatians 6, look at verse 14 on the screen. Who wrote this? But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who wrote that? Paul, Paul, whoa, Paul, you're the apostle. Paul, you've got all the revelations. Paul, you started all these churches. You were the very first one to take the gospel into all these cities. Paul, you wrote 13 books of the Bible. I I think you can kind of brag a little bit. Paul says, far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world's been crucified to me and I to the world. Here's our lesson just before the second point is this. There will be exulting and glorying and boasting in eternity, but it will be in what God designed and it'll be in what Jesus did. What God designed, what Jesus did. Number two, very quickly. Second point this morning, God is not schizophrenic. Not only does faith exclude boasting, God's not schizophrenic. Look at verse number 29. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one. God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. This one's tricky, but I think if I, could, if I could talk with Paul, I might ask him, Paul, what are you doing in verse 29 and 30? I think he would say this. I'm anticipating because I've heard the Jews do it many, many times. When I say what I said in verse 20, and when I say what I said in verse 28 about it's by faith apart from the law, I think the Jews think I've received some new revelation of how Gentiles get saved, and I don't want them to think that. I want them to be reminded of something, so I'm using a very specific point that they major on. And so Paul makes it very clear. Listen to this. What do you mean God's not schizophrenic? Watch. God is one God. God is not many gods. Watch. It's not that the Jews, you got the really big, strong one. Now, the Gentiles, they get the lesser gods. But yours is so much bigger, it's almost like there are no other. No, there are no other gods. What he's saying is God is not schizophrenic. He's not like I'm the God of the Jews this way and I'm the God of the Gentiles a different way. I'm, I'm with them one way. I'm, I'm, I'm this way with them and I'm this way with them and I'm just different. God is not duplicitous. God is not a schizophrenic God. He is not a developing God. He is not an evolving God. He is one. Watch, this is important. God is one and he is stable. If he were not stable... I want to use a phrase, four letters, four words. God is eternally consistent. That means if we were to go from your perspective in eternity past, as far back as you want to go, God was eternally consistent there all the way to the present in what we call human history. Go as far as you want into the future. God is eternally consistent. If he were not, then we could never rest assured in the eternal part of eternal life because God may change or a bigger God may come from somewhere else and overthrow our God and we find out he's not able to keep the promise of eternal life. J.I. Packer spells this out in three ways. He says, number one, God's life doesn't change. He's eternal. God doesn't grow older. Hey, how old is God? He's not. He doesn't gain new powers. He doesn't lose former powers. He doesn't mature and develop. Wow, God's really getting good at this now. God doesn't get stronger. He sure doesn't get weaker and he's not wiser. Number two, God's character doesn't, doesn't change. He writes the following, strain, shock, a lobotomy, some, somebody getting the utensil, messing around physically in your brain. You know what he says? 
that can alter the character of a person, but nothing can alter the character of God. And he talks about us. Packer says, in the course of human life, tastes, outlook, temper may change radically. I would propose to you the kind person can become very irritable. The unkind person can really mellow out when they're older. Some of you, you used to like a certain kind of food. You don't like it anymore. Some of you ladies, you have something in the closet. It's only five years old. But honestly, you're like, eh, I don't know if it's the cut. I don't know if it's the pattern. Just the buttons. I just don't like it anymore. You loved it five years ago. You bought it. You're like, but my tastes have changed. In five years, you changed. God never changes. And thirdly, his truth never changes. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse number 4. If you were to go to a Jewish synagogue, they would read this. This is their, literally the, the most exalted verse that they, 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 they speak on every week. They rehearse this. They drive the, this into themselves. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. So Paul, here's what Paul's doing. God's not schizophrenic. Paul uses a truth. There is one real God. Since God is one person, he's chosen one consistent means of salvation, whether it be Jews or Gentiles, Old Testament, New Testament. Here's what I find. Sometimes people read the Old Testament and here's the conclusion. Yeah, they got saved in the Old Testament by animal sacrifices. Y'all catch this, somebody in here this morning, that's what you think. You think, yeah, God saved the Old Testament people by sacrifices. I'll propose to you the animals never saved them. It wasn't the offerings that covered people's sins. You're like, what was it? It, It's very subtle, very subtle, watch. It was faith in God's word that led them to be obedient to perform the offerings. It was the faith that saved them. The offering was the visible fruit, the visible manifestation of the faith. God always has, God always will look for one thing. If a person this morning, you say, I don't know that I'm going to heaven. I want to know that I'm going to heaven. God's looking for one thing. If you're in the Old Testament, you say, well, shouldn't the Old Old Testament, they offer sacrifices? Absolutely, but it was because that's the outpouring of the belief. I believe you, Lord. I trust you. And since I trust you, you said do that, I'm going to obey. God says it's your faith that what's really saving you. Third thought. Verse 31, God's way produces real and lasting results. This is the last thought in our passage today. God's way produces real and lasting results. Verse 31 says, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? Christianity, Paul's teaching, New Testament, doesn't it basically overthrow the law, the faith way? Paul says, by no means, on the contrary, we uphold the law. Say, Jeff, what's that about? I think what Paul is saying is this. Somebody's going to read what I wrote in verse 20 and verse 28, and they're going to come to a wrong conclusion, and it's going to be this. Christianity sees only one use for the law. All the law does is shows us how sinful we are, and we can never keep the law, and that's it. So shove it aside, and now we'll move on with Christianity. And so Christianity is basically against the law. Paul says, no, Christianity is not opposing the law. It does not overthrow the law. Christianity upholds, even establishes the law. You say, how does that happen? By two things. Number one, wish I had room in your handout. I just didn't. I really needed to put three things there. What does he do? Number one, 
by what Jesus did for us. And under here, there's really three thoughts. I've got to cover it quickly because we've already covered it in essence. How does Christianity establish? It's not opposing the law. It doesn't just like use it to show us we're sinners and now cast it away, don't ever read it again. No, Christianity establishes the law because Jesus fulfilled the prophecies. Christianity says all these prophecies in the Old Testament, it's real. They were fulfilled in Jesus. It honors the Old Testament by showing it's an accurate, prophetical document. It's the word of God. He called it. Jesus fulfilled it. Secondly, our champion Jesus met its perfection. The law demanded perfection. We couldn't do it. Jesus was perfect for us. And then thirdly, Jesus took our punishment. So the law demands punishment for sin. Our champion, our savior, took the punishment in our place. And so Paul says, Christianity upholds the law. But not only by what Jesus did for us, but also by what Jesus does in us. Note the wording. Not many, about half the writers that I read something, just try to get their take on verse 31. Honestly, about half of them didn't even touch that second thought. All of them touched on the first thought. Hey, what Jesus did for us, look at it again. Hey, do we then just overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. What I'm about to say is so important. I realize I've been preaching quite a few minutes. It's so important. I'm going to read the majority of it because I don't want to mess it up, but I need everybody's best attention. Christianity upholds the law by what Jesus does in us after we're saved. Listen carefully. I preach salvation by faith. Why, Jeff? Because that's what the Scripture does. But I believe repentance... And faith are actually two sides of the same single coin. And there may be someone listening to this go, yes, now tell them about repentance. That's how they'll get saved. Tell them to repent and get right. Listen carefully. That is correct. They need to get right. I had to get right when I was nine years old. Don't you listen. Repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. You say, what do you mean? Repentance comes from a word, metaneo, not meta, seems like I've heard that used before. You've heard metamorphosis. Meta means to change. Meta, neo, is the mind. Watch. Repentance means a change of mind. And I know a lot of people hear that, oh, that's wishy-washy, that's watered down, that's not real salvation. Hear everything I've got to say, hear it all together. I'm gonna, you say, you're talking out of both sides of your mouth. No, I'm not. I want to try to give a well-rounded presentation of what verse 31 is talking about. What is repentance? It means a change of mind. It means afterthought. It means to give a second thought because the first one wasn't accurate. You better give that an afterthought. You better think about it again. And I'm going to propose to you, it's in your notes. When the mind truly changes... The actions always automatically follow. Right now, every one of you, your mind trusts that chair. All of you, your mind trusts the chair. I know it does because I don't see a one of you really stressing out. But if you heard a major cracking sound that sounded like metal giving at the same time as the front right leg on your chair buckling forward, you don't care about making a scene. You will, your actions will show that your mind changed about that chair. I promise. Because I've seen it happen. I was at a piano recital about a mile away from here. And 
Dude got up. Why? He felt the chair shift, heard popping. Your actions will change if your mind really changes. I preach salvation by faith. Watch this. Salvation by faith that results from a changed mind about, you say what Jeff, about your sin. You change your mind about your sin. It really is bad. Had someone just tell me this, just this morning, their loved one made a comment, well I haven't done that many things wrong. They better change their mind about their sin. You change your mind about yourself. I'm not good enough to get to heaven. Watch. And you change your mind about your Savior. I will contend when you do that, you will trust Jesus. You'll have trust fall. What you saw earlier, at that moment, when you change your mind about your sin, whoa, it's bad. I'm in trouble. I'm not capable. He is, and he already has. At that moment, you will trust Jesus. The reason some that's in here, if you have never trusted Jesus, it's because your mind has never changed. One of those things, you're still not there yet. You may still think, well, my sin isn't that bad. Or you may say, I know my sin's bad. Well, you apparently think that you are going to be okay in spite of that because you do enough good. Or you question, it's one of these three, you question Jesus' ability to save you like what he did on the cross is not sufficient. But the moment you get those three things, your mind really changes, you'll trust Christ. You say, what happens? Two things happen after that. One, you get eternal life. Two, the Holy Spirit comes in you. So what happens when the Holy Spirit comes in me? Everything changes. Note the order. You just changed your mind. You put your faith in Christ. You get eternal life. Here comes the Holy Spirit. Now, back to reading a note. At the moment the Holy Spirit comes in your body, you literally become possessed. You're like, oh, now I thought they were weird. I know they're weird. I have been possessed for 38 years. There's two of me in here. Once he comes in your life, God's Holy Spirit begins to make real, measurable changes. What kind? Your desires, your thoughts, your feelings, and your actions change. It's a gradual process. It is gradual. It is continual all the way till the time you die. I call the Holy Spirit the difference maker. Here's what I mean. He when he comes in you, will do in you and through you what you never could do on your own. Paul says, oh, we're not against the law. Christianity establishes the law once the Holy Spirit comes inside. Quick conclusion. I want to be clear. Again, I'm reading so that I don't mix my words. It's important. You do not change your life to become saved. Some people preach that. Repent. Get your life right. Straighten out. Stop sinning. And then trust Jesus. Wrong, it'll never work. You do not change your life to become saved. But, I'll say just as strongly, once you become saved, your life will inevitably change. It will change. If it doesn't, you didn't get saved. And I know by saying that, two things happen in our audience. One thing happens, here it is. Someone here may have thought they were saved because they had a religious exercise, a religious experience years ago. But you know in your heart, your desires, your thoughts, your motives, your actions, nothing has changed. You're just playing a game to make somebody else happy. You know there's been no core change, though you say something happened years ago. You say, what do you have to say to that person, Jeff? I say, I am sorry, you are not saved. 
You say two things happen in our audience. What's the other thing? I also know by talking about the inevitable change, someone else will hear of that inevitable change and it'll scare them off from coming to Christ. You say, then don't tell them. Just let it happen after. I can't. I can't. Why? I am sorry, but I cannot promise you no change. You will change. And if that keeps you from coming to Christ, then so be it. Because what he's saying is, I'll save you, but I'm going to tell you, I'm going to come in your life, and you're going to start changing. That's what Paul's saying. Christianity is the only religion that really establishes the law. The other religions water it down and lower the bar. The other religions make it about externals, and it puts the pressure on you to get saved and you to keep yourself saved. Paul says, Christianity, no, we just put our faith and trust in Christ. He will do it all. He will begin changing us. Other religions put the pressure on externals to do this, perform, do this, do that. I'm going to go out on a limb. And if I'm wrong, it's Charlie Rice's fault. I really believe this. I believe a Christian who understands grace, salvation, and who focuses, watch where the focus is. Oh, the, the list of do's and don'ts. No. A Christian who understands grace, salvation, that it's only by faith, that's all I do, but then his Holy Spirit comes in me. Watch. If they will focus on learning and loving God, catch that. That's the New Testament law. Jesus says, here's my command that you love me. Here's my command that you love one another. What, what, what Paul is teaching, if a, if a new Christian will focus, I want to learn God and I just want to love God. I'm going to tell you something. You won't need the Ten Commandments because you will not break them. You won't break them. You'll run circles around the legalist. The legalist, he's doing his do's and his don'ts and he's wearing himself out. You're just loving the Lord and living life. The legalist lives out of fear. Fear motivates, I'll tell you, fear motivates. If you get fearful, I'm not going to have any money, it'll make you get up and go to work. But another man who loves his work will accomplish much, much more. I thought of this this week. Love continues long after duty has put the tools in the shed. Hey, honey, third time, supper's ready. Oh, yeah, you okay? I'll be right in. I just wanted to. Ah, this is therapy for me. I love doing this. Somebody else. Oh, am I done? No, I need 30 more minutes out of you. Total different. Some people's version of Christianity. Another person, they just love the Lord. Finish what I wrote. If we'll live by the New Testament law of love, we'll glorify the Lord with our lives and we'll have a lot more fun living the Christian life. Jesus is most glorified, not when we endure the Christian life, but when we delight in him. It's not like, i got to tell people about Jesus. You just start telling people about Jesus because you love Jesus. It's not a to-do. William Barclay words it this way. He says, now the Christian strives for goodness not because he's afraid of God, but because he loves God. He knows now that sin is not so much breaking God's law as it is breaking God's heart. And therefore, sin is doubly terrible I'm looking for one word it's in verse 31 it's the key to the Christian life anybody want to say it by the way it's been all through our text it's how you got saved faith look at the two verses on the screen Colossians 2 verse 6 and 7 catch what Paul says 
Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus. How did I receive Christ Jesus? By faith. As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith. Catch this. How did you get saved? I got faith by trusting he can do it all. How do I live the Christian life? By trusting he can do it all. Real quick. This is, I'm closing now. How's your week been this week? How's your service for the Lord? I want to invite you. Focus on two things. The law of faith and the law of love. If you'll focus on those while reading the Old Testament, but don't look at them as a list of do's and don'ts. You focus on loving the Lord. If you do the other way, here's the other way. I am battling this certain sin. What is your main sin this past week? What's your main temptation? Think of it. Hurry. I'm going to give you four seconds. Think of it. The main one. The main one you've been battling. Not your wife. Well, I know hers. No, what's yours? How have you been fighting that sin? Have you been yielding to the Holy Spirit? God, this tempts me, but I'm going to trust you to defeat it. Or is this your method? I'm going to do better. I've got to, how's that working? Not very good. Hey, those of you that have a job, you say, I can point to something. I serve God this way. I do this for God. Do you do that through your ability? Or do you honestly go in saying, God, I need you to do this. Use me, but you do it. One is fruitful, and the other just wears you out. My last thought. Christian, talking to you for a second. What do you have in your life to build your faith and your love? What do you have? I don't want to be a hypocrite. I promise you I am not putting a to-do, a performance on you. But if I could offer you something that will really help you, would you try it? I want to invite you. Focus on one main thing in your Christian life. Here it is. Get a private time. It's the most powerful thing. I'm not telling you how many minutes. I'm not telling you, how, telling you how many verses. I'm not telling you any of that. Get a private time. This is the key to the Christian life where your main goal is, Lord, I want to fall in love with you. Ask him, God, will you give me faith and love? And as he starts answering that, your prayers get stronger. And you ask for more faith and more love. And you find yourself, and it may be 10 verses. And you might not get 15 things out of those 10 verses. You may get two things. But all of a sudden, you're loving the Lord more. And when you love him more, you want to talk to him more. And the more you love him, the more you get in here. And the more you start learning about him, I promise, the more you learn of him and know of him, the more you love him. And then you'll just be living the Christian life out of the overflow and not because it's a have to. That's the key. But if you don't have that in your life and you say, I go listen to Jeff for an hour and five minutes on Sunday, that'll never get you where you need to be. That is the most powerful thing in the Christian life is you and God and letting him grow you toward him in love and faith. Would you bow your head just for a moment? Christian, real simple. Christian, I'll start with you this morning. You say, I already know the Lord. Right where you're at, I'm going to invite you. Thank God for loving you, like right now. Just tell the Lord in, in prayer. Say, God, I want to say thank you for loving me and doing everything you did to save my soul. Go further than that. Remember, for me it was nine years old. Remember when you got saved and specifically say this to him. God, thank you for letting me hear the gospel and giving me the faith to believe. Ephesians 2, John 6, 2 Timothy 2. Lord, I never really thought of it. You even gave me the very faith to believe. Thank you for doing that. 
And then last off, for the follower of Christ, all it asks is right now, ask God to strengthen a private time with Him. And Lord, say, Lord, strengthen a private time with you that fosters love and faith. Lord, I need love and faith. And I know that when that happens, Christianity fulfills the law. It establishes it. We don't cast it aside. We end up fulfilling it out of love. You may be here this morning, and this is a fact. I don't know. I really don't know, but God does, and you probably do. If you have never put your faith in Christ, you saw earlier on this stage a physical illustration of salvation. A trust fall. If you've never done that, I want to remind you, God made eternal life with Him available. But He did it in such a way you can never boast about it. You can never brag. You can never be proud what you've done in it. You say, then how do I get saved? Here it is. Think of those four men that were here earlier. But now apply their attributes a million times more toward Christ. Here it is. You get saved as you trust Jesus Christ's ability to save you by his death on the cross. I'm asking you, do you believe that what Jesus did on the cross was enough? Is he able to save you? And then secondly, you trust his willingness to save you as evidenced by his very own promises. You've heard it. God so loved the world Jesus said he gave his only begotten son and Jesus said whoever believes in that only begotten son will not perish but have everlasting life Jesus is going out on a limb and saying I am able I promise you I am willing Romans 10 verse 13 says whosoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved Acts 16 verse 31 says believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved you will be saved the moment not the moment you stand up not the moment you come forward you'll be saved the moment you believe in Jesus' ability and you believe in Jesus' willingness and with that I have three questions number one don't answer out loud answer honest in yourself do you believe God loves you? do you really really believe God loves you? number two do you really, really believe that he would save you if you ask him? He, I just read you promises. Whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's what he said. Do you believe he's willing and able? Is he trustworthy? You say, I do believe he loves me. Do you believe he would save you if he asked him? Then lastly, if you said yes to both of those, then very simple. Will you ask him now? you've never done it. I'm not talking about rededication. I'm talking about if you have never asked the Lord Jesus to be your Savior, will you do it right now? You say, what do I have to do? Literally, right where you sit. You bring God into focus, and by faith, you know you're talking to God. You're not talking to me. But at this moment, you just simply say, God, I am a sinner. You're right. God, I'm sorry. Tell him right now, God, I'm sorry. But God, I also believe that what Jesus did is enough. I believe he's able. Lord, I'm telling you right now, I believe you're able to save me. And you said you would, so I know that you will save me. 
And I'm going to ask you right now, and do it right now, God, will you let what Jesus did on the cross count for me to pay for all my sin? Will you let it count for me? Save me, please. And then thank Him for what you did. Lord, thank you for saving me. I receive it right now, and I'm never going to doubt you. Father, I pray that as we sing this simple closing song this morning, that our hearts can sing it truthfully and honestly. Lord, if there's a Christian here this morning that's just been going it alone, their own effort, out of duty, that, Lord, they would this morning just give you all their ability and and admit that it's nothing. And, Lord, ask you to live the Christian life through us and establish your law, your law of love and your law of faith in us.